everyone. Welcome to this Roundup. Democracies have already been in distress. COVID-19 has further put the democracies on defensive. If the democratic institutions and governance model cannot show decisive leadership to manage the crisis like COVID-19 effectively, then the concerns of societal collapses increases. Now crises, each crisis, test governance models at all levels, both short-term and long-term. Now while this pandemic is in the early stages, it is already testing nations' governance models and system. As a result, it is important to evaluate its effectiveness and if there is a need for change. To discuss the impact of COVID-19 on democracy, I'm delighted to welcome Professor David Mazington to this roundup. Dr. Mazington is a professor of the practice and director, Center for Public Policy and Private Enterprise, School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland College Park, based in the United States. He's also an elected board member and member of ACM US Technology Policy Committee. Welcome, Professor Mazington. We are so honored to have you on this roundup. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful, Professor. So the COVID-19 rampage, it goes beyond human lives. It is destroying businesses, industries, economies, and even democracies. Now, as we see restrictions on civil liberties are becoming a new norm. Where do you think the world is going with this? Um, I think um, different uh, implications for different societies. I think um, it's interesting to see in the news that the assessments have already been made that some societies are doing better than others. In the United States, at least, our response, our public health response, is being challenged by uh, many of the same governance deficits we saw preceding uh, previously, um, a lack of consensus on basic information, um, poor planning, poor execution, uh, disputes between levels of government. I think those things are all characteristic of federalism in the U.S., and they've impaired our response to this crisis, and they continue to do so. So do, how do you see this current crisis and the current uh, way of operations evolving as we go forward? Do you see that uh, the this is going to bring the change in how the government operates permanently, not just in the United States, but across nations. I mean, I do think there's lessons learned to be had already from the way different governments have addressed these problems. You can look at the response in Sweden as being one example of a perhaps less shelter in place, but still relatively successful response to the spread of COVID. You can look at South Korea's success uh, as perhaps the most salutary and welcome, welcome positive of a democracy successfully dealing with, with something. I think you're seeing society creating different um, approaches to reconciling uh, divergent objectives. On the one hand, civil liberties and openness. On the other hand, public safety and public security, public health. These do conflict, at least in the short run, uh, in many societies, just given our different uh, societal traditions. One could think of the individualism of the United States, where we insist on a limited government where we hold government to pay, but it might be that the solutions we need require a different role for government. And I think that if you look across the US, you see different states have adopted different approaches. Um, certainly if you uh, compare the state of New York, for example, to the state of Florida or the state of Georgia, you'll see uh, an interventionist um, approach in the former and a much more laid back, decentralized, later set of responses in the latter southern states. Yes, that is, that is true. Now, as we see, coronavirus is highlighting the profound inequality that exists in our global society and between our states. I mean, you just give an example in how different states, you know, had different approach and have a different approach in how they are dealing with this COVID-19 crisis. And what I, yesterday I was looking at the news conference of uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, and what came out very surprising was that the 60% of the new cases that are being hospitalized, they are coming from people that have stayed home, that are, you know, maintaining the social distancing and all that. So uh, again, the science is very fluid and the impact is very fluid and the, we don't understand much how this is going and how it is uh, in, infecting others. Uh, it is an airborne disease, right? And there, there are many, many things we still have to figure out because this is a novel, you know, new virus and we are still learning about the virus. So we, every state and every, you know, decision maker is going with a different approach in how to deal with this virus to protect their community, to protect their citizens. But there is a lot that we still don't know. 
And right. I do think there are things we do know, however. I mean, I think that we know that um, we don't have a vaccine. Yes. We also know that we don't really have good therapies for dealing with the progress of the disease other than remdesivir, I guess, was the latest one that was announced. Um, and we also know that the shelter-in-place guidance that the CDC and others have advised has not cured this pandemic. It has simply changed the distribution and timing of infection for much of the public. So there are some facts that we know. We also know that um, the reason shelter-in-place seems to flatten part of the pandemic is because it limits close human contact with people who are either asymptomatic or actually infected but not showing much symptoms at all. So those, from what we do know, there's some public health guidance that seems fairly uniform across societies, and that is... Yes, yes, um, but, but Professor, you know, I, I was wondering this, that the last pandemic that we had, we were, we approached the last pandemic just the same way, and we are approaching this pandemic, you know, in also the same way. So my question is bigger, you know, than this, that, you know, why have we not evolved? in how to manage the pandemics. Yes, you are right that we don't have vaccines, yes, we don't have therapeutic you know, options, but there are, you know, from my understanding now, you know, there are many companies that are coming up with uh, the trials of the vaccine. So yes, they are all working on it. Right? Yes, just in that case, I think that there are, things, there are facts we know, but implications we don't. Yes. Um, so that we know about drugs that are going into trials, but we also know that usually it takes a year or more for therapies to go through complete human trials that respond respect human safety and security. So we can accelerate these trials and these therapy development processes only so much. Uh, my concern is less that, I think that will, can be accelerated because pharma knows what they're doing. My concern is the government seem to have forgotten that they need to respect science in their responses so that we are not adopting uniformly public health guidance. We're reopening the economy, for example, absent therapies, absent testing data and absent a vaccine on the horizon with predictable responses in terms of epidemiological insight that have predicted the shape and intensity of the damage, that those projections have been ignored. Those projections are the result of science, but the science is being displaced by politics or by fear or by prejudice, honestly. Um, blaming the virus on some particular ethnicity or some other society in ways that actually impede an effective response. The real tragedy, I think, here is that we know better, but we're not able to, to, act, to actualize our knowledge in terms of better performance. So that's, that's the crisis for government for me, which is we're unable to actually do as well as we know how to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear you on that. And there are a lot of questions that are going to emerge from that. And there are a lot of debates and discussions that will emerge, you know, because of what is happening, not just in the United States, but across many countries. And yeah. democratic governance models are vulnerable to change. And uh, as we see that any other form of governance, for instance, the authoritarian models, if they are able to manage the crisis more decisively, then... Uh, there is also debate going to emerge that what is a better governance model for governments? Is it democracy or is it uh, authoritarianism? You know, where in this kind of crisis challenges, what would be the best mode of governance? So there are a lot of questions and a lot of debates that are going to emerge from this. So mm -hmm. do you see that COVID-19 disaster is a setback for democracy, not just for the United States? Well, you know, I, think I think you can already see, and sort of more closer to my expertise in terms of disinformation and uh, cyber cybersecurity, you can already see governments contending with each other over trying to lay blame for the progress of the virus. The accusations that China concealed early information about the nature of infection, et cetera, is just about distributing blame and reputational damage to other actors with whom you compete. So China and the United States, at least the administration, are now blaming each other for the, ability, for the progress of the, of the pandemic, rather than choosing a different path, which would be international collaboration to suppress the virus. So that's not over. And in a sense, um, we're, we're living a long experiment where the democracies and authoritarian states, as you've stated, have a public debate and a political debate over who's performing better. Um, the competition between China, for example, and the United States in terms of 
world order can't help but be affected by, uh, by these, these trends. China does seem, at least at first blush, to have done a much better job of bouncing back economically than we are. That judgment may change over time as we learn more about what's happened there. But, but initially, yes, it looks like one model of governance to a third party, an interested third party, might seem to be doing better on this. That may not be the judgment in six months, but um, that's six months from now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, we all see that and the visible battle that we are witnessing between authoritarianism and democracies, I think will probably likely intensify and it will shape the minds of many people based on who is more effective in navigating their respective nations through such, you know, existential crisis, like having the uh, pandemic of this proportion. So I do think there is one set of um, realities that aren't, aren't much reported. And I think that might, they don't clarify much, but they do add richness to the discussion, which is the performance of subnational governments, states, local governments, public health authorities, not just in the United States, but then in other countries, that is much better than the national government level. So I, I look at the state where I live, Virginia, Maryland, California, and others, where governors, democratically elected leaders, are doing much better in terms of showing mastery and control, leveraging their governmental resources to respond to their crisis in their jurisdictions. That same more salutary, more satisfying, I suppose, perspective is possible in other countries. I look in my old, in my old um, province of Ontario. I originally came from Canada. Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia are all doing much better than larger governments. Now, the Canadian government's doing fairly well as well, but there is an interior story inside democracies that is a little bit less um, despairing, I suppose. Now, they, they are national governments, so they maybe can have the total effectiveness and they should, but, but you know, the, the notion that democracies are each national experiments where popular government gets to deal with challenges in different ways and sometimes you're more successful, sometimes you're less, didn't end with COVID-19. And I, and I look at, um, there are some states in the United States that did anticipate the progress of the pan pandemic and did organize the resources as they could to meet the challenges facing their citizens and some states are doing better as a result. So yes, I mean, I, I, we all can see that you are right about it, but at the same time, the barometer, the mark that everybody is uh, watching very closely is how many people are dying. Yeah. And that is, you know, that is uh, a question that is going to haunt, you know, many states and many countries because- No, I agree. I mean, it's it, the, the, numbers, the numbers tell the story and they're frightening. Very true number tells the story and especially when we see over half of the humanity is in lockdown right now. I mean, we are not talking only about United States, all over the world and in democratic countries, uh, we are witnessing that the freedoms that have taken the greatest toll are those related to the free movement of individuals and, you know, and not many people can get together assemblies and all that. So there are also states like Texas. Uh, you know, where people love freedom, you know, and they do not like to be told what to do and where, wh when to close down and things like that. So uh, there are also a lot of people, you know, raising questions that uh, did the democratic process follow when democracies decided to curb the freedom? Because today they told that, okay, we, nobody can go out. Tomorrow they will say that you can do jobs. You will have no earning, you know, wages. You will have no earnings. You don't have any enough money to feed the families. If you see in India, there are, you know, all of a sudden the country went in shutdown and there were millions of laborers that got stranded. There were no buses, no transportation. Everybody right. had to walk to their homes, you know, home states. There were hundreds of miles, you know, and a lot of people died during the process. So there are a lot of questions that are going to emerge from this that, you know, what is, what should have been done? Because yes, you are trying to save lives, but at the same time, the number of people that got stranded, the number of people that are going to go hungry and the businesses, the number of businesses that will go bankrupt. So there is, there, it is not just the number of people that will die. It is the number, it is the impact. This you know, pandemic is going to have on the 
bankruptcies and hungers and famines and you know those are also the bigger questions that are emerging so are we following the democratic processes when we take the decisions like this to curb the freedom and entirely shut down the systems you know oh, i think that there's always a tension in the democracies between um, you know the public's welfare and the and the interests and preferences of individuals we're seeing a very very difficult version of that right now and different democracies are dealing with it in different ways i would say that it's necessary to differentiate between a failure of a system compared to a failure of a policy. These are different things. And I think that that's, I think the system, just putting that argument aside for a second, it's quite clear that many de democratic governments have done a very poor job of managing pandemic response. Uh, not all the same, not all as bad as each other, Perhaps you have an extreme where Germany is in the good part of the curve and the U.S. is in the less good part of the curve. I'm not sure. Um, I think governments can do better. They can recover. Obviously, huge costs are being borne. I think there are, you know, time will tell ultimately whether the system is in crisis because of the policy failures that we're seeing right now. I think that there's a whole set of broader international security impacts that are not being discussed right now that are likely to be as serious as the public health failures uh, that we're seeing. For example, we're seeing China's explosive growth seem to, sh to stutter and maybe halt. The projections of China exceeding US GDP uh, in two, three, four years may be missed now. The projections for international trade patterns to remain global with global supply chains, et cetera, all of that looks less sensible now than it looked a few years ago. So global supply chains and industry may change as well. I look at global travel and the, and the functional bankruptcy of many of our airlines, not to mention our um, leisure cruise lines, et cetera. None of those business models look very sensible anymore. So huge tectonic shifts are coming in the global economy and, and national security. I put it to you that the ability of the United States, or rather the reputation of the United States for competence, for good government, for honest government, is on the line as well. Our performance is not only having human costs, enormous human costs, but it's costing us in terms of reputation for being an effective country, a leading country, a country that others should emulate. I think each of those things has been injured badly by our failure to come to grips with these challenges. In an international security environment, that introduces risks. Risks of the US's word not being trusted, risks of the US's capability and capacity to act being distrusted, and countries choosing to not go along with us when we assert facts and judgments in the way that they did in the past. Those are all going to interact with our economic sort of chaotic condition that we have to create a new world. And there's we don't know what that new world will look like other than one thing. We know it won't be a simple extension of what we knew. After all, six months ago, you could get on a plane and fly anywhere uh, in a few hours and be anywhere and transact business and use your cell phone and the rest of it. All of that's been thrown in the air now. So yeah, the old familiarity, the old predictability, I think are gonna be uh, transforming in front of our eyes. History, you know, it doesn't always move in a linear slow projection. Sometimes this punctuated equilibria where things change dramatically and we spend decades afterwards getting used to uh, used to the new situation. So this era for me is analogous to the Great Depression. Yes, yes no, I, 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 social transformation, um, yes. changes in values. For example, individuals' um, personal anxiety having economic consequences. I, whenever I hear discussions about reopening the economy, I always think of people I know who don't want to leave their homes, let alone go to a restaurant or a movie theater or things like that. So basic human behaviors that are routine. I mean, for example, this June, I was supposed to be in Paris doing Paris Cyber Week. Well, guess when that was canceled. <laughs> and my international travel for the next year has basically all been canceled. This is, so that's David Mussington academic. Um, for international business and just the way global society works, these are, these are catastrophic times. 
Yes, and I think that's where the challenges are that in spite of making all these advances in science and technology, we have we are witnessing the collapse of all the systems because we want to prevent the spread of the virus. I mean, I'm sure that innovators can do better than this. You know, we can come up with effective way of curbing the, you know, transmission of the virus than, you know, shutting down the entire society. And at the same time, we can, we are also creating the cascading effect of this uh, decision. And uh, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that we actually have better ways Rather than let, me, let me explain. For example, we have made great advances in AI. We have made great advances in Internet of Things and biosensor technology. If we had focused on developing technology to see where the outbreaks are emerging, then as soon as we would have found out that you know there is an outbreak in China Huawei region, we would have you know closed down that area and we would have uh, disinfected and shut down the entire system and we would not have allowed millions of people you know travel everywhere and cre create this pandemic. That was possible, but the challenge is that we don't focus on the right problems to solve. So again, that's a topic of another discussion. That today's you know topic is about the democracy impact yeah. on the democratic institutions, but the point is that we have to innovate how we solve problems you know and that because it, it seems so uh, you know old that you know last pandemic we managed like this in this pandemic also we are managing like this and millions are going to die because of hunger and because of job losses in india there are 100 million plus people who have no jobs in united states we have 30 million plus you know that have no jobs or no income how are they going to support the and the trade has collapsed the is you know entire supply chains are collapsing so we, we can surely do better than this and especially now when we are seeing the impact of ai emerging the ai of course you know the ai driven automation is going to accelerate the job losses you know in the coming years so how are we going to manage the casualties the ca cascading casualties in the coming years you know, I think that um, at least a couple of things. First, I think that uh, in order for AI or any of these new techniques that we have to have effective um, impact on the problems we face, we need good information. And one of the initial failures of pandemic response was that we didn't have good information. And that information that we did have, we didn't use it to make decisions. We used other information, prejudice, fear. We didn't use the information in the tools that some people um, wanted to use. Second, I think that anyone who served in government, and I've served in government a little bit, can tell you that uh, AI and other um, advanced techniques aren't really being used by senior decision makers to make these decisions. Perhaps it is in the medical profession and public health, but not at the White House level. They aren't used. I mean, we perhaps people suspect that this White House is not using those, but when I served in a White House under the last administration, first term, um, you know, our decision-making patterns were substantially the same as they had been 25 or 30 years before. So the basic mechanisms of government, information processing to make better decisions, anticipating future, future threats and risks, aren't very good. They might be better in business. I think they are because business confronts the national, the economy and business conditions much more, much more closely. Um, so yeah, we're in crisis of methods, crisis of information. Um, we don't know what the future will hold. Um, I think that there's some things we can do to enable ourselves to deal better with the uncertainties we face. I think the uncertainties are still going to be there. For example, we do have an economy. You cited the unemployment figures. No doubt they're enormous and they're going to get worse. I saw 3.7 million people added this morning who had been seeking, seeking unemployment insurance. Um, 30 million people over the last couple of weeks, past six weeks. Um, clearly, short-term unemployment insurance is not going to be the way to support those people. Yet we are not able to make the political decision yes. for some sort of permanent income support for people. We're still acting as if this is a short-term problem. Um, and because we act that way, we'll spend a lot more resources before we ultimately come to, the, to a predictable conclusion, which is we have to support our people. Um, for societies that are less wealthy than the, than the U.S., the situation is dire. I agree. I have family in India. I'm aware of the realities that people, some people are confronting. And 
Yeah, information and wisdom and empathy are likely to be to help you more than than a Darwinian approach, which is being adopted by some of our political leaders, basically deciding who's worth protecting and who isn't. Now, I'm kind of a bit of a humanitarian, even though I'm a national security guy at heart. I mean, I think that um, better information and better systems, um, in a sense, collide with democratic consultation and deliberative um, inferences and narrative. Yes. Many of these things, we need to make decisions right away, but we don't have consensus on what to do. So that, and that's a uniquely democratic, <laughs> democratic political um, situation. Um, yes, I, I, and I think you made a good point about the decision-making process, that yes, governments are behind in the decision-making process in how they make decisions. The system is not that mature as, you know, mature as the businesses are, you know. Mature. Let alone the scientific community, we feel also much better. Yes, that's a good point. But at the same time, I also see, I mean, look at the state of our country, you know. The political divide is enormous. I mean, the ideology has created almost like a segregated society. And that is very unfortunate because, you know, the minds are so drawn about how certain things should be that there is no room for, you know, coming together. And that is a shame that we, right now, you know, we are facing those challenges, even to, you know, manage the pandemic. The political divide is so enormous. And even before this crisis, the dissatisfaction with democracy has been on the rise in many regions, not just, you know, but many yeah. regions. I think economic uh, changes in the last 10 or 15 years have driven that, where many of the gains of our economic growth seem to go to people who are at the top of the social economic ladder, and not and the people at the bottom tend to either fall into the gig economy or just fall out of the system entirely. I think that that's an overstatement, by the way. <laughs> but, but I think you're right. When people see that their lives and the lives of their children and their relatives are likely to be less good in the future, it makes them ask basic questions about, the societies they live in. And I think that um, the, dem the democracies confront that more directly. It might be that there's a parallel process in authoritarian regimes where their legitimacy becomes, over, becomes undermined by a continuation or emergence of bad economic performance, but we don't know that. So mm -hmm. for democracies, yes, there is a, that is a crisis, I'll agree. On the partisan divide in the United States and perhaps in some other societies as well, I guess I have a slightly different take. I mean, I think there is a partisan divide, no doubt, undeniable. Some of that partisan divide is because of previously um, lower participating groups in the last decade have started to participate more and are no longer acting in silence. I mean, I think of, um, obviously, I proudly served in Barack Obama's administration, so full uh, disclosure on my biases. But the representation of groups that used to not be part of the national conversation has elicited a response by others that looks to some like partisan division. To others, that looks like a clash of world, world views between groups that, are, that share an American nationality or a common national heritage, but differ on who should get to speak. And that's, that's America. Uh, we're not hopefully going to get over that one. I think that it also coincides with political parties where, where, to be frank, one of the parties has decided that it's not interested in that broader national conversation. The other party has decided differently. And those two communities fundamentally disagree. Interestingly, they disagree on the factual basis for pandemic response as well, where one side is much more science driven, I think. And the other side is, you, can, you, you saw, I, I'm sure, the, uh, the armed uh, people in the Michigan State House with the AR-15s on their backs. I mean, or people yelling in each other's faces uh, and attacking people who wear protective masks. I'm not, okay, that's not a part of that issue. That is a Wow, what kind of issue is that? I'm not even sure how to characterize it. No, I, you're, I mean, there are huge challenges, no doubt about that. But at the same time, we also have to think deep down that are these ideologies outdated? Because I think, you know, the challenges that we are facing as a society, the challenges that are coming our way, 
are so huge that we will have to come together if you want to solve those you know problems for the future of humanity otherwise we'll see society collapsing as we move forward this pandemic is just the beginning but where we are going with the ai driven automation that you know will bring the lot of economic you know disparities there is there will be enormous challenges coming our way so unless we are able to work together we won't be able to solve problems and i think both the parties ideologies are outdated so we need to work on that we need to come up with effective understanding of what are we fighting for we i think we all are fighting for the same thing to protect our rights to protect our future so, so i think that's know, i think that's true for some I think some are seeking to step back in time to an era where that they feel was better. Some are nostalgic for a past where the challenges seem more manageable and where um, people they now blame for society's failures were less visible. I think that there's a nostalgic part of it, part of some people's ideology that searches for that. I think the opposite of that is, is the appeal of science and rationality and logic that the future can be better than the past if we expand participation and visions of the, of the future, which aren't all Western and aren't all American, and that we just allow people to participate in the definition of what the way they'll live in the future. And that means making economic decisions and political decisions to elaborate on that vision. It doesn't mean, for example, a simple acceptance of policy prescriptions that have not delivered in the past. So if we, for example, decide that a pandemic response requires that the economy really be shut down for many more months, if we decide that, then we need to follow the thread of logic. That means what else do we need to do to make that sustainable? Because if it isn't sustainable, people will rebel. Uh, because society, because people will see the future as being worse than the past and they will not, they will not agree to participate. So we, we owe it to the public, especially to democratic publics, to show a plan, some sort of plan. And we need to say how uncertain, we need to admit the uncertainties, the uncertainties that we haven't resolved, but we need to commit to resolving them using the best tools, AI, information, exactly. elite judgment, expert judgment that we have. And we need to state upfront that that's our approach. I think that if we did that, people might have more patience. People might have more, and democracies might face less of a crisis that you correctly recognize that we face. So telling the truth, applying the best reasoning that we have, but showing empathy for those who are bearing the brunt of the costs that we are, that we perhaps are, have to bear. And that means on unemployment, for example, not, not telling people that they are not gonna have income in three weeks and not telling people that by the way, they're losing their health care too. I mean, these we, we can't we can't say we're going to get through this and then abandon the least among us because we don't think that we can afford to take care of them. These are our society. We owe them a debt of common feeling. You know, we're all in this together. That should be the vision we have. I think in the in the best of approaches to dealing with our current challenges. We need to apply our best judgments, our best science, our best resources to the task. Yes, yes. Now, we the the yes. difficult part of this might be that those resources are controlled by people who don't want to, to use them in the way that best scientific judgments would state. And I'm not quite sure what to do about that. And here I'm citing, um, you know, the, those who think the economy needs to reopen have a fairly strong difference of opinion with those who think that they understand the pandemic's dynamics. And, that, and I think, at least the public health opinion I'm hearing, doesn't tell me that it's safe to completely reopen the economy absent a lot more testing and some sort of therapies or a vaccine. Yet we have governments that are kind of doing what we did back in 1918, reopening the economy before we have really gotten a handle on the control of the pandemic. That has predictable consequences, which we'll have to deal with if we follow that set of judgments that are divorced from science. So the path before us is one of choice. We have to choose whether we adopt a rational, empathy-laden, scientific referring response, or we adopt a political and economic response which 
won't meet public health requirements. Uh, we really do need to privilege the science here, in my opinion. Um, and if we don't, well, the cost will be borne, unfortunately, unevenly, by those who are poorest, who have health challenges, who just don't have access to power. Do you, do you see that uh, we are missing the objectivity in the decision-making process? And as we move towards AI-driven automation and as governments adopt uh, these decision-making technologies of AI, that we would see more objective decision-making uh, happening. And if though, when we move towards that, I mean, right now we are seeing Hungarian leader, you know, Viktor Orban, he recently approved a decree by his nation's parliament that gives him broad powers. To rule the country now as we move it's not just the pandemic as we move forward with the you know ai driven automation and decision and we adopt those tools and technology to uh, do the decision making for the governments do you see that uh, the democracy will be able to survive and that we will not move towards greater authoritarianism well i mean i think the democracy will survive but i think the balance between executive authority and legislatures may change um, if, we if we favor expertise, um, I don't know the Orban um, pronouncement very well, but he has a reputation for being somewhat more authoritarian than some other democracies. If we think that, that sounds like executive freedom of action to me. Um, if that's leveraging artificial intelligence insights, and I don't mean current level artificial intelligence, I mean some sort of future artificial intelligence that's better, maybe strong AI, uh, then that's better judgment, not necessarily more democratic judgment. And that would be in sync with a shift from participatory democracy towards executive um, latitude, of latitude of judgment. It can still be democratic. It just won't be democracy as we currently know it. And there are always political debates between the power of the executive and the power of the legislative or judicial branches of government in the United States. So I think that we're going to see a shift towards enhanced executive power unless unless that is the executive is judged to be not competent and the 2020 election will make that judgment in one way or another but more generally if we go to expertise to artificial intelligence based on better information and better information processing there's no reason to think that necessarily favors democracies after all who controls the ai who controls the information and access to the information is it those who run economically important companies, government, et cetera. If they do, you're right back to favoring executive power over legislative or participatory uh, assemblies and, and democratic legislatures. I'm not sure what the way out of, is of that. If the executive is still responsible to a democratic public, maybe that's enough. Um, but AI isn't necessarily de democracy favoring. Why should it be? It's intelligence. Um, is more knowledge um in sync with the likely decisions a democratic polity would would favor for example we have political consensus on all sorts of issues um that show opinion prejudice belief faith yes those don't resolve back to artificial intelligence reasoning well there's no reason to think they would anyway um, if we choose to push those aside in favor of artificial intelligence and more sophisticated decision-making procedures that I may approve of, um, I might think we get better public outcomes in terms of policy. In fact, I probably do think that. I, and that, I may think that's democratic because as long as our executive power is responsible to the electorate in some way, that's okay. There's a lot of, the broad spectrum of democratic accountability between a strong executive, which is nationally elected every four years, and a Congress is elected every two, and states that are elected in, you know, off, year, off years where you have hundreds of thousands of electoral officials making consequential decisions. So AI has impacts at each of those levels. There's no reason to think it's democratic. It's legislative friendly, might be executive friendly, especially executives that claim special knowledge and insight that they don't share with other people. Envision, for example, a, a future 15, 20 years from now, where we have another pandemic like this one, where Let's hope we have, that we have that. Well, yeah, <laughs> hopefully that not. our last pandemic and we don't see anymore. Exactly. But imagine an environment where the executive has artificial intelligence models that suggest the path of the disease and suggest patterns of infection and suggest that it's necessary to act right away 
to solve this problem. And then envision communicating those insights to a public that doesn't know science, that's less well-educated about science, but still has prejudices about how pandemics work and how a pandemic started. Converging those two things is always going to involve friction and controversy. And AI doesn't get you out of that if you're a demo, if you're, unless you're an authoritarian, in which case you use force. But if you're a democratic state, you confront the requirement to explain <laughs> and convince. And, and explaining AI insights to the public isn't going to be easy. It'll require work. And it'll require defense effects and rigor against prejudice and demagoguery and rhetoric and hate mongers and disinformation and the rest. Yes, of course. I mean, there are going to be challenges. It's not going to be an easy transition, but it, I, I believe that AI will, if we design and define the algorithm and objectively without okay. that, there are no biases getting into the algorithm, then I think we will get a lot more objectivity in decision-making process. I guess that's true, but how do we do that? I mean, I look at some people in my university who work on um, algorithm bias in home lending, in um, just information processing to do things like facial recognition. And these are, and I look at the, have the relationship between algorithmic development and test data sets, which often incarnate bias because of data collection issues and methodologies. And, you know, I don't think that AI is necessarily going to reproduce the biases of its creators, but I think it'll take some work to make sure that it doesn't. I don't think that it naturally will give us, you know, it may give us more effective decision-making, don't get me wrong. It may not give us more democratic decision-making. By democratic, I mean an informed public making individual calculations of value and risk that are informed by the best information available that collects into a national position on a particular decision or judgment or policy. I don't think that's artificial intelligence. That's called legislative democracy. No, you made a good point. And yes, there are a lot of questions that we still need to answer. We still need to figure out how to remove the biases. Uh, from those algorithms and it's going to be a uh, work of its own you know there is a long way we have to go before we bring the objectivity in the algorithm so there are no biases involved in the decision making process but i'm confident that we'll be able to reach there and you know because no, and I, I hope you were right i really do yeah. because i think that um i tend to be an optimist when it comes to science and engineering and i think generally speaking it delivers more benefit than cost yes um, but it doesn't do that if it's not directed it doesn't do that naturally any more than it naturally does the opposite. I think that we need to have some values that govern the kind of AI that we say we want. And that means if we want AI that doesn't duplicate the prejudices and decision-making. Of course, of course. Of the past, but we need to ask for that. Absolutely. And the, people, and the people asking for that often are democratic leaders. Yeah, otherwise what's the point of, you know, automating all those decision-making processes if we are going to just replicate the challenges that we are facing in the society now? There's no point of that. But on the other hand, if I run a private business, I might want to do, I might want to deploy artificial intelligence to make more money. <laughs> right. no, I, 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 hear you. I mean, we will have to make sure that the algorithms are not biased and that we don't carry the challenges, you know, that we are facing in a society now and then uh, multiply it, you know, numerous fold uh, because, you know, algorithm, we won't be able to control it that much, you know. When I look at my own students and I look at the university where I am in a school of public policy, yeah. And I look at the difference in methods between the business school where we share a building and the public policy course content and the expertise education that I have. I'm a political scientist economist. And I look at the sophistication in the engineering school in our computer science and mathematics department and the real deficit in methods and timeliness of social scientists like me versus engineers and um, and mathematicians are there. I'm concerned that we need to keep up or catch up again uh, in the social science domain because we won't actually understand <laughs> the dilemmas that artificial intelligence poses. And I think that's one of the problems we have right now that government's going to be surprised by how good AI insights are mm -hmm. sooner rather than later. And when they're surprised, they're going to deny the validity of the insight. I mean, I don't think that they'll just say, of course, we must take advice from our AI uh, guidance. 
I don't think that's what they'll do. I think first they'll deny it. They'll, in fact, they'll sort of go through the, the phases of denial, sort of, uh, um, they'll argue with it, they'll bargain, <laughs> they'll uh, be depressed and then they'll accept. I think that sort of three or four phase process is how um, governments, let alone democratic governments, confront dramatic change. And I think AI has the potential to pose that kind of change. So that we need to get ready. Um, I look at my students and I think of how many of them are mid-career, 20s and 30s, that are retraining um, on science and data science in order to catch up. I that makes me optimistic, actually, because it means that they're going to be able to ask the right questions um, when they face technological change, which is even more rapid than what we already confront. Our current leaders, leaders have gotten, have had the, the great benefit, I suppose, of not having to make those decisions. Yes. They can, they're, in a sense, we're in a transition period where we have leaders that barely use computers, don't understand smartphones, you know, have never programmed a computer and don't deal, don't understand what big data and social media are. Our new leadership in the next decade or two, three decades, my daughter's eight, my daughter's 14 in a few weeks, her generation, they, their awareness of these technologies and what they can do is transforming in terms of the potential we have in the future. So that part makes me optimistic. The transition from where we are to, to that world, however, we're not doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, there are enormous challenges uh, that we are facing and uh, we will have to use effective technologies to uh, come to rescue and we have to evolve our governance model because there are a lot of things that technology will be able to do much better than what we humans are doing because there is, as we see right now, there's so much divide and there's so much segregation, there's so much hatred towards, you know, each other just based on the political ideology. I mean, talk about religion and all those things, you know, if you add all that, then there, there are enormous challenges and we do need to come up with effective ways, effective tools, technologies, processes that we can bridge those divides. We can all come together as one human species because right now, we are all acting as tribes and you know that is not a healthy way to live or healthy way to progress and you know we have to look towards the future of the humanity if we continue like this then there are enormous risks coming our way so uh, there are huge challenges so having said, what would you, how would you like this democracy to move forward where do you see the challenges and what we need to do well, you know, I agree. I agree with your with the, the side of the challenge you, you you present. I think that um, just going back to a remark I made a few minutes ago about not all governments are failing as catastrophically as our national governments are. Uh, I'm involved at the state level in Maryland in a in a civic initiative that joined universities together with civil society groups to organize based on information and based on informed conversation about problems and challenges that we face to build consensus on solutions. It also builds trust. I think that that is a necessary condition for us doing better. And obviously technology can facilitate those sorts of, sorts of interactions. I look at the form we're using here and I look at the potential for that to be a mass, a mass experience where basic insights, positive insights, fact-based insights are shared among people in a calm, hopefully calm, um, way that allows exchange free of rancor um, and allows us to see the values we have in common as much as we have in opposition. That's maybe an old fashioned view of civility in civic life. I think that many smaller communities in the US, in India, elsewhere, can still do that. And that's a hopeful thing. Enabling that through technology may be the best we can do. And that means expanding the circle of those involved that we think are like us, that have something of value to offer, using technology to build common bases of understanding of complex problems, and having a discussion about the solutions that will work. I go back to policy dilemmas we have, what to do about the pandemic, what to do about supporting people who are at heightened risk, the elderly, those who are immunocompromised, others. We owe a common um, set of responses to help people. That's, I think, a humanitarian ethic that I think many Americans, most Americans, um, feel. I, that's a belief I have. I think more than just Americans, many people feel that way. And I think a reasoned conversation from faith traditions, from an ethical tradition, 
um, just from a humanitarian position at the community level. Uh, for me, it's the state of Maryland and Virginia, it's in that location. Scale, that may be scales to a country and to a world that allows people to talk to each other as human beings more and, and takes away the sort of veneers of prejudice and rancor that get in the way. It's quite clear that we can't respond collectively well unless we do that. I think technology, to the extent it can engage people on a common base of facts, common cares for family and for communities, might be the most optimistic thing that we have, especially if we can wet artificial intelligence and better information processing to that process. That would mean sort of a transformation of the public's ability to hold two contrary thoughts in its hands at the same time. One, that the collective interest needs to be advanced through consensus. And second, that the weakest among us are deserving of support. I think those two ideas are often in tension with each other. I think that dialogue is the only way, fundamentally. I know I may be an impatient person, in fact I am, I'd like to do that faster than some other people I know, but I think, I can't think of another way of doing this, since I don't want to leave other people behind. There are ideologies, unfortunately, that don't mind leaving groups behind as we adjust. I think that we can't afford to do that. Um, that's, but then again, I, you know, I grew up in the UK and Canada. I'm now a public policy professor in the US, so that's probably me showing my, my background. But I really do think that that's the promise of science and an outreach of the internet and forums like this, which is sharing of ideas, reasoned argument, consensus building, rinse, repeat, that process. That's what we're going to do. And technology can accelerate that process. Yes, absolutely. And I think you put it very well that uh, we cannot leave anyone behind. We are all one species and we have to make sure that we all progress and develop, you know, and we all have opportunities to grow. And there is no room for, you know, biases, prejudices, hatred, or, you know, any of those uh, in our uh, society now. Because the if we continue living as a tribe, then the you know, challenges the coming our way are so enormous. We have to think of this collectively, as you said, and we have to think of the future of our species. So thank you so much, Professor Mazington, for participating in Risk Roundup today. Okay. Appreciate your thoughtful insight on COVID-19 implications on democracy. And I, we also went towards you know, a little bit of discussion on what is coming our way, AI, and uh, I'm sure our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided today. And as a result, this Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. Thank you. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. And our ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups, get involved to protect the future of humanity. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.